wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter u.org joining me is the director of education and counseling for jews for judaism in canada the website is jews for judaism.ca jews for judaism.ca welcome back to the program rabbi michael skoback Good day, mate. How you doing there? Doing very well. Thank you, my friend. And of course, we are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. This is part three, part three of Isaiah 53. Uh, now, the, the first one that we did uh, was entitled, Could Jesus Be the Servant of Isaiah 53? We were investigating whether or not that was a fair claim, whether we could, you know, make some correlations there. The, uh, the second one that we did, which was last week, uh, Isaiah 53, if not Jesus, then who? This part, part three, I'm not sure exactly where you're going. This is a mystery to me, so I've got my notepad ready. How shall we begin? Well, what I'd like to do, because I, I have a teacher in my blood, is just to very quickly recap, get everybody on the same page, and then just to continue from where we left off last week, Please. Um, if that's okay. Um, Indeed. So, basically, we're, we're looking at this very, very pivotal, and I think it's uh, it's an important passage. Um, it's clearly an important passage for the uh, Christians who bank on this, and I think that in the revised standard list that we're going through, I think there are like 30 of the messianic prophecies are found right in this chapter of Isaiah. Mm. So it's really clear, It's this is clearly, uh, uh, you know, a, a central and critical passage for the claims of Christianity. And so what we did two weeks ago was to look at some of the numerous problems with the Christological reading of this chapter of Isaiah. Just briefly, the, the three that I wanted to point out again was that number one, any honest reading of this chapter will just clearly show that it's it's not simply, you can't just simply say it's a messianic prophecy. It's not so clear that it's a messianic prophecy. We saw that it didn't have any of the language of messianic prophecies, none of the telltale uh, signs that mm -hmm. a passage speaking about a descendant of David or a king. Um, we saw that the apostles of Jesus didn't really passage as a messianic prophecy. No one was expecting Jesus to suffer and die. Um, we, we saw that actually over the course of the past hundred years, there have been dozens and dozens of Christian scholars who did not see this passage as a messianic prophecy. So mm -hmm. that's one major problem is that we're dealing with a passage which is not even clearly a messianic prophecy. Um, another problem along these lines is that to read this as a messianic prophecy doesn't have any corroboration, meaning that it's you can't plug Jesus into this passage and find many other passages in the Tanakh that sort of corroborate that reading. Mm. And that's a very serious problem. The second problem we looked at was that even if someone was to insist that this chapter was a messianic prophecy, the other thing is it doesn't point to Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus does not even line up with this chapter. So we saw that if you go through the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and you look at what Isaiah says about the servant, it doesn't line up with how Jesus is described in the Gospels. So, for example, Isaiah says that the servant would be universally and roundly despised and rejected. It's going to be characteristic of his entire career. And we saw that in the Gospels, Jesus is actually portrayed as being extremely popular. We saw just uh, you know a number of problems. The, the prophet Isaiah says that the servant will be rewarded with a long life and having children. That's something that obviously didn't apply to Jesus. We saw that one of the verses makes it clear that the servant 
is not an individual but a group of people who suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we just saw that textually the description of the servant in Isaiah doesn't really fit the description that we have of Jesus in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, the whole idea that the Messiah comes to die as an atonement for the sins of those who believe in him simply conflicts with the biblical approach to the whole topic of atonement from sins. We know that in the Bible you don't need someone to die for your sins. You're able to atone for your own sins. And the truth of the matter is the idea of an innocent person that takes his sins upon uh, guilty people is just antithetical to the Bible. Uh, We know that Jesus would never have been a kosher sacrifice. Uh, Human sacrifices were forbidden in the Bible. Sacrifices had to be offered by the priests, not by Roman soldiers. Sacrifices had to be offered on the the, the altar in Jerusalem, and there was an altar standing when Jesus was killed. So uh, basically the entire concept of sin and atonement in the Jewish Bible doesn't fit this Christological reading of Isaiah 53. What we began looking at last week was why so many Christian scholars agree with the traditional Jewish view that the servant either is either Israel, the nation of Israel, or really more correctly, ideal Israel, or the righteous of Israel. Because the mm-hmm. truth is that you can't really say that every single person who happens to be a Jew can be called a servant of the Lord. Not every Jew throughout our last 3,000 years of history has really necessarily bought into the mission of serving God mm-hmm. or following God's Torah. So since Isaiah is describing the Lord's servant, it really probably more appropriately would be applied to those in Israel who've taken on that mantle of actually serving God and being his servants. But mm-hmm. you can read this either way. I would say that it's more common to read this as uh, applicable to the righteous of Israel you could make the argument that it speaks of all of Israel and somehow the ones that aren't on board get uh, elevated by the righteous. It's hard to really pin that one down. Mm-hmm. So the reason I think that so many Christian scholars have agreed with this Jewish reading of Isaiah is that, number one, throughout the entire Bible, not just in Isaiah, but through many, many books of the Bible, the servant is identified specifically as Israel. God's servant is identified as Israel. And more specifically, ten times in the preceding few chapters before chapter 53, Isaiah himself specifically and explicitly identifies the servant as Israel. Um, Secondly, we saw that if you study the entire thrust of chapter 52 and chapter 54 of Isaiah, the chapters that surround Mm -hmm. the chapter that we're studying, they speak about the historical suffering of the nation of Israel and contrast it to their ultimate redemption and exaltation. Uh, And that's exactly the way we're going to be reading chapter 53, that it describes the ultimate and eventual exaltation of Israel after a long career of suffering and being despised and rejected by the world. And the third thing that would commend this reading is that each verse of this chapter can be corroborated with numerous passages throughout the rest of the Bible that substantiate this kind of reading. So, for example, uh, the Bible doesn't describe the Messiah as someone who would be despised and rejected. The only place that idea would be found would be in Isaiah 53, if that's the correct interpretation Mm -hmm. of Isaiah 53, whereas the idea that Israel suffers is spoken about throughout the Bible. 
So we're going to see that, and we saw this already last week, that when you try to plug Jesus into this passage, you don't really have uh, an organic corroboration and substantiation of that reading with parallel verses in the rest of the Bible, whereas reading this as a, as a passage about the rejection and suffering of Israel, we'll find many, many passages mm. in the other books of the Bible that actually speak about Israel in exactly that way. So if we can just recap what happens in the end of chapter 52, we're told that the servant of God is going to be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high, mm-hmm. and that that will totally shock and blow the minds of the kings and nations of the world, because it's not what they expected. And again, that, that doesn't fit with Jesus, because the nations and kings of the world are specifically expecting if anyone in the world is going to be the one to be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high at the end of history, they're expecting it to be Jesus. Mm. And it would not shock them in the least. It would certainly shock Jews if Jesus would be the subject of this chapter. And yet mm-hmm. Isaiah doesn't say that the Jews are going to be shocked, that Israel's going to be shocked when the servant is exalted. So we're told that the servant will be exalted and it's going to shock the nations and kings of the world. And of course, that makes total sense if it's Israel because the world is not expecting, at the end of history, Israel to be uh, redeemed or to be coming out with smelling like roses. The Mm. world is really expecting Israel to be crawling to them uh, with their tail between their legs, admitting, oh, we were wrong all along and you were Mm. right. The world is expecting Israel to recognize that they were wrong. And this chapter of Isaiah says, no, it's not that the people of Israel are going to confess that they had been wrong throughout history. The the prophet here says that it's going to be the nations and kings of the world who are shocked and surprised with the vindication of Mm. God's servant Israel. And so that's the end of chapter 52. And then chapter 53, we see a group of people making a speech. They're they're basically making a declaration as a group of people. And it's very clear that the group of people speaking in chapter 53 are the very nations and kings of the world who, in the previous verse, were told it would be Mm -hmm. shocked by the elevation uh, and exaltation of the servant. Now, we should say, before we go on, that this chapter is a messianic chapter in its context, meaning that when will Israel be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high? It's only going to happen in the the messianic messianic age, exactly. Mm -hmm. When the Messiah is here... And the veil has been lifted from the entire world. And so it's, see. it's during the Messianic Age, but not specifically about the Messiah. And as you pointed out in earlier programs, the word Messiah does it's not even mentioned here. It's not even mentioned in the context of the surrounding chapters. It's not about the Messiah, but it does occur in the Messianic Age. Exactly. We saw that there are two kinds of Messianic prophecies. The vast majority are about describing how the world will look what's going to be happening in the world when the Messiah is here, and then about ten passages that specifically and explicitly speak about the person of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so this chapter is going to be describing something that's going to be taking place. It hasn't happened yet. The world, the nations of the world, have not made this realization. They have not expressed these thoughts yet. So Isaiah here is really telling us the kind of speech that the nations and kings of the world will be making in the future when Israel has been redeemed, when we've been exalted, when the world recognizes, oh, the Jews were right all along. We now see 
since we see that the Messiah has come and it's not Jesus, we see that the Jews are right for not believing in Jesus. So mm-hmm. that's really how we began last week. And I want to pick up now with verse 4, because verse 4 really is the, uh, the beginning of really the most, I guess, sensitive and nuanced part of this chapter, because it's really, it's not an easy chapter to really uh, explicate. And mm-hmm. in the Jewish sources, there are actually several. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to share two approaches because it would just take us forever to go through every single approach. Sure, sure. Well, let me, I'll, I'll just read verse four then. It says, surely yes. it was our sickness that he was bearing, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God. Okay. So this is really the heart of the confession of the nations and kings of the world. And what they're really saying is that all along, meaning that the, the conventional wisdom throughout history was that why do the Jews suffer? Why the Jewish people suffer throughout their history? So the, if you scratched anyone over the course of Jewish history, they would say, and they're still saying, well, the Jews are suffering because they are enemies of God. God is punishing them because the Jews have rejected the prophet, they've rejected the Messiah, they rejected the truth, and because of that, God is punishing them. That's the conventional wisdom, that's what you would hear from your typical Christian or Muslim or even pagans that didn't believe in God so much. They simply mm-hmm. thought that the Jews were evil and they were getting what they deserved. So they're saying that's what we always thought. And now they're saying that they realize that it was their ills that the Jews bore and their pains that the Jews carried. Now, what does that mean when they're going to be saying that the Jewish people bore and carried their ills and their pains? So the simplest way of reading this, as I think I mentioned last week, is that it's really a confession that the nations of the world are admitting now that they took out their problems on the Jewish people, that they scapegoated Israel to alleviate their own uh, issues so that uh, corrupt governments, in order to distract their people from the real villains and the real causes of their problems, would simply blame all of their ills on the Jewish people. So they're expressing here this, and this is a dynamic that has been going on, and it still goes on to this very day, Mm. where nations of the world simply blame their problems on the Jews. The Jews are causing their problems. So that would be the simplest reading. But there is a more nuanced reading, and uh, I think that it's not as easy to understand, but I think that there's a tremendous amount of um, power behind it. Um, It's expressed by many of the Jewish commentaries. One of my friends and a colleague, Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Blumenthal, Mm. uh, he has an article written on Isaiah 53 that basically presents this kind of reading. And basically what what he shares is that the world now, when this speech is being made, there, the, the world now is experiencing at this time in the future God's presence in the world. This is the messianic age, and this is an age in which God is present in the world, the world is experiencing a true connection to God, and they begin to realize that over the course of history, it wasn't that the Jewish people were preventing this unfolding of the messianic drama, they're, they're coming to the realization that it was really their misdeeds, their uh, wrong beliefs, their mm-hmm. evil that really prevented the ability for the world to reach its utopian uh, potential. 
And what the world at this, in this speech is really saying is that in order for God to dwell in the world, in order for the world to be a proper dwelling place for God, uh, people have to really prepare the world, meaning that God is not going to dwell in the world if he's not welcome. And God's not going to dwell in the world if people are evil. Uh, as Isaiah says, our sins separate us from God. So the question is, how will the world become a stage, a place where God will be able to uh, make his presence really known to all of humanity? And so the world really, by all rights, is recognizing that all of humanity, all human beings really, should have been responsible for making this world a fitting place for God's presence. And how would the world do that? The world would do that by purifying their hearts and to humbly accept God's rule and God's truth. I mean, that, that we have to really purify ourselves to become righteous and to be aligned with the truth in order to have God dwelling in our midst. Mm -hmm. However, ultimately, God did not place that responsibility on, on all of mankind. He placed it exclusively on his servant, Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, Israel, therefore, would be responsible to purify its heart, and by doing that, by becoming righteous, they would be able to radiate God's truth to all of mankind, sure. would ultimately come to that light. That's what Isaiah describes in chapter 60, that the world is going to ultimately come to the light of mm -hmm. Israel. Um, and then they would benefit from that light, because we'd be now living in a utopian world where God's, the knowledge of God is spread across the world as the waters that cover the seas. So here, Israel has the responsibility, according to this plan, to purify itself, to refine itself, to become righteous, and to make the world a proper dwelling place for God. And how does Israel become refined? How is Israel purified? So Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10 says, Behold, I have refined you, not as silver, I have chosen you in the furnace of suffering. That the way in which Israel is purified of its sinfulness is through suffering. It's through the experience of suffering that Israel comes to recognize its faults, its mistakes, its sins, and then it becomes purified through repentance. And so what the nations now are realizing, and this is a, a, an amazing realization, they recognize that through Israel, it was through Israel that God actually was accomplishing his purpose, and it was for their benefit, meaning that by Israel taking upon itself this responsibility of purifying itself through suffering and preparing the world as a proper dwelling place for God, now that that has happened, now that God has come to the world and the world is living in the messianic age, the world is going to realize that the suffering of Israel was for their benefit. And that suffering really should have been borne by all of mankind, by all rights. It shouldn't have only been Israel to have had that responsibility. All of mankind should have been responsible for that. And the truth is that because of the wickedness of the nations of the world compared to Israel, they really would have suffered much more than Israel. And so at this point, the nations, when they say it was our ills that he bore, our pains that he carried, they're acknowledging the reality that Israel, through the suffering that they endured during the exile, that ultimately prepared the way for God to return to the world. That's what the Bible really speaks about, not the second coming of the Messiah, the second coming of God, that God is going to come back to mm -hmm. the world and to really allow all of mankind to live 
in a blissful kind of existence. So now that the world is is tasting that bliss, they're tasting the 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 beauty of and truth of God's Torah and God's mm-hmm. truth. They're acknowledging how did we get here? We only got here because Israel really went through and endured this tremendously long exile and able to purify themselves to prepare the world for God to be able to come and dwell in the world, we have to express our thankfulness to Israel. Will, will you uh, just clarify then, because I know people are going to be asking the question, what is the difference between what you have just illustrated and the concept of vicarious suffering? Because this is not saying that through the suffering of Israel, the sins of the world are atoned for. That's a very different kind of concept. As a matter of fact, uh, I didn't want to get into this, but one of the readings uh, of this passage is that that's exactly what the nations might have thought. Meaning, according to one reading of this verse in Isaiah, the nations originally thought that Israel was suffering because God hated them. But now they're realizing, no, God didn't hate them. The Jews are righteous. The Jews believed in the true things all along. We realize that we were wrong. So at this point in Isaiah, according to this reading, they come up with the theory, which is erroneous, that Israel suffered throughout their history to atone for the sins of the world. Now, this is wrong because, again, biblically speaking, we don't have a concept where those that are innocent suffer and die for the sins, to atone for the sins of others. Um, we see that in Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, Ezekiel chapter 18. This idea of vicarious atonement uh, doesn't really exist in the Bible. That The Bible says people will die for their own sins. People will suffer for their own sins. And so, biblically speaking, uh, the idea that I was expressing before was not that the nations of the world have achieved atonement for their sins through the suffering of Israel. What they achieved, what they, were, what they benefited from, was that Israel, through their suffering, was able to create a world, an atmosphere in the world, where God could indwell. God would be able to come into the world. But it didn't cause the nations to be forgiven for their sins. That they had the responsibility to do by themselves all along. If we bring, okay, if we bring this concept to modern history, if I may, because I know a lot of people will be thinking about this, how do we apply, how would you describe uh, the concept that you've just brought forth, the interpretation that you've just brought to us in, re- in relation to something like the Holocaust? That's a very sensitive topic. First of all, you know, philosophers have said that when it comes to suffering, you know, the suffering of you know, two or three innocent babies is just as problematic as, this, as the suffering of six million Jews, the death of six million Jews. So it, it's very hard to really differentiate between different kinds of suffering. And I think that um, you know, when we look back at 3,000 years of Jewish history, um, the Holocaust was clearly unique, but not that unusual, meaning that we had gone through uh, periods of our history where there were mass murder um, mm. of, of many, many Jewish people during the destruction of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Um, you know, there was a huge loss of life. And during the Chemelnitsky massacres, 100,000 Jews were killed. So mm. we've had periods of our history where there were tremendous mass murder during the Black Plague in Europe, mm. um, you know, Jews were, were blamed for that, and you know, entire Jewish communities were wiped off the map. Mm. Um, so, what I would say is that if we're looking at 
the course of Jewish history, the long period of Jewish history, as um, being characterized as um, one of tremendous suffering. So, uh, you know, it, it's, you have to differentiate between looking at explaining the suffering of an individual versus the, the suffering of the nation as a, as a nation. Mm-hmm. And those are two different topics when it comes to the question of God's justice. Um, you know, uh, because clearly the nation itself is composed of many different people. Some are righteous, some are not righteous. Mm-hmm. And yet God deals with the nation as a nation. Um, and so at least one way in which we look at our national suffering is that it is for the purpose of ultimately purifying us, of um, bringing us to a proper relationship with God. Now, th- this raises immense philosophical problems because you know, one could ask, you know, is that an appropriate means for God to use in order to get his people um, to really accept the truth and accept mm-hmm. his uh, dominion? Um, I, I really can't get into that question here, but it, it, it's pretty um, universal in terms of how this passage in Isaiah is understood that the um, suffering that it describes of Israel over the course of its history, of course, when you focus on a particular episode like the Holocaust, mm. it really becomes very emotionally difficult to, mm. to, to, um, you know, to, to, to plug that in. But the, the passage here is describing, in general, the idea that as a people, our suffering does serve this purpose. Now, are there other things we could say about the Holocaust? Um, for sure. And ultimately, the, the message of the Bible is when it comes to suffering, we really can't ultimately understand God's ways. That's the message, the entire message of the book of Eov, of Job. Mm. Um, it comes out throughout the rest of the prophets, you know, that we can't as human beings ever really wrap our heads around how God runs the world. So to speak about our suffering and at the same breath say that it's supposed to have this cause. It's supposed to cause us to improve and to um, purify ourselves, and it's supposed to have that effect upon us to purify ourselves. That's a truism. At the same time, you know, we scratch our heads and we just can't understand the enormity of some of our suffering and, uh, you know, how we square that with God's compassion, God's kindness, God's love. Um, so it's not an easy um, topic to uh, mm. address on all of its different levels. So I, what I would say is that, you know, when we talk about the Holocaust or other suffering in this, in this, from the scope of theodicy, of trying to uh, justify the way God runs the world and to explain the existence of evil and why righteous people suffer, that I don't think we're going to have at our fingertips from Isaiah 53. I think that Isaiah is making an observation, uh, at least from one angle, about what is supposed to be an outgrowth of our national suffering. And that's, uh, as Isaiah said in chapter, I think it was 48, verse 10, that God has chosen the furnace of suffering mm. in order to purify his people. Um, you know, I think, so, that, I think that it's a legitimate thing for us. You know, Abraham was someone who fought with God, the, the very name Israel means that the one who will struggle with God. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a question that any sensitive person 
would have to ask. It's it's very difficult for but it, us. But it goes on, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, to, to add some uh, definition to that which you just quoted, uh, I have in front of me, and I'll read from verse 9, for my namesake, for my namesake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my name's sake, for my own name's sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's to me, it's a problem that you know it would be independent of how we understand Isaiah fifty-three. Um, I think Isaiah 53 is looking at the, the question of historical Jewish suffering um, from this angle of, you know, what might be one of its purposes. Um, the question of theodicy, of justifying God's mm. uh, running of the world, would justifiably and rightfully ask, well, couldn't God find another way of purifying us? You know, mm. and, and again, you know, we would have to defer to God. I think that you know, sitting here as human beings, we have to assume that God knows what he's doing, even though it rankles us and it bothers us. I think that you can't be a sensitive, a breathing human being and, you know, not sometimes bristle at the kind of suffering that takes place in the world. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, we have a right, as, just as all the prophets, you know, we're, we're screaming at God sometimes. You know, Abraham screamed, shall the judge of the world not do justice? Mm, mm. You know, and I think that we're left with that question. And at the end of the day, Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. You know, one of the medieval Jewish prophets said that if we really knew God, we would be God. Um, so ultimately, we as human beings are not capable of uh, explaining or understanding fully how God runs the world. You know, uh, last week in the Torah portion of Kitisa, mm. Moses asked God to to show his glory, to, to show him his ways. And it's not clear what Moses wants. I mean, what is Moses asking for? And the way the Talmud understands that question is that Moses is uh, really asking God to reveal to him why is it that the righteous suffer. That's what he really wants to know. And God says, you cannot see me and live. Meaning that not that you can't see me like to see your physical form. It's seeing in the sense of understanding, like I see what you mean. So God says to Moses, you want to understand why I allow righteous people to suffer? He says, you can't understand me. Why? Because you're a living, mortal, finite, physical human being. Mm -hmm. I am an eternal, spiritual, transcendent being that mm -hmm. you have no way of understanding. For me to explain anything to you, Moses, to explain why I don't want people, human being, why I don't want Jews to eat a lobster, or why mm. I allow people to suffer, it would be like a human being trying to explain to their pet goldfish why they enjoy Beethoven. Mm, mm. Human beings, animals can't access the way a human brain thinks, and human beings can't access the way God thinks. But God says to Moses, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by you and my back you will see, which is a very, very difficult passage in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's very mystical and it almost defies explanation, but one of the ways it's understood is that God is saying to Moses, look, if you want to understand history and you want to understand why people suffer, I can't explain it to you full frontal uh, directly, but from retrospect, if you have a long view and you're able to look back on history with a lot of perspective, my back, God is saying, then you may be able to begin to appreciate why certain mm. things happened. Um, so really, we have two 
problems here. One that you're raising, which I really can't, uh, I can't do better than uh, the Bible, the book of Job, where basically mm -hmm. God says, look, you guys never created a world, so don't expect to understand how I run the world. And uh, this chapter in Isaiah, where the nations here are acknowledging that they benefited from the job that Israel did, that Israel's suffering led to the purification of Israel, which led to the ability for the messianic age to take place. Don't forget that throughout the Bible, God says that the redemption will only come to Israel when they repent, when Israel achieves a national mm -hmm. revival. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, that, uh, and we see it, for example, in Isaiah chapter 59, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Israel who've turned away from sin. So there's this, this historical project of Israel needing to get its act together, Israel needing to fully come to God. And that happens through the crucible of suffering, which purifies us. And the nations are here acknowledging that really, by all rights, it shouldn't have only been the Jews that had to go through this process of purification to bring about the messianic age. Really, all of us should have been responsible. So now we acknowledge that the suffering of Israel throughout their history has ultimately benefited us. And so they exp exclaim here, it was really our ills that he bore and our pains that he carries. So can I ask you then, just, just to recap uh, in a nutshell, the difference between the, what you presented last week and, and what you're bringing to us today? Well, last week it was simpler to understand. Last week what the nations are admitting Again, the, the question on the table is, how do we understand the historical suffering of Israel? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it's, it's, you know, what, what, the, what the prophet says here is that, you know, when people would look at the Jewish people, they would, couldn't believe. I mean, it's almost impossible to fathom the depth to which mm -hmm. the Jewish people have suffered. And so that's a, a, an incredibly difficult question. And the, the conventional wisdom has always been by the nations of the world – well, we know why Israel's suffering, because God hates their guts, because why does God hate the Jewish people? Because they're evil, they're wicked, they reject the truth, they reject the prophet, they reject the Messiah. And now, this chapter is speaking about, in the future, when the world has finally recognized that, no, the Jewish people have been correct theologically throughout their history, they believe mm -hmm. the proper things, so now we look back and we wonder, so why did they suffer? And so they're acknowledging here, they suffered through our wickedness. As a result of our sinfulness, we took out our problems on the people of Israel. We scapegoated them in order to alleviate our own ineptitude and our own wickedness and our own incompetence and our own inability to live our lives properly and run countries. Don't forget this is a speech being made by the nations and kings. Mm. So they're saying, we know what happened. We know why the Jews suffered because we were wicked people who persecuted them throughout their mm -hmm. history. And why did we do it? We did it. It was, it was really for our benefit, meaning we always assumed that it would be a convenient way of healing our problems by simply blaming the Jews. It's the fault of the Jews. The Jews did it. Um, so that, I think, is the simplest reading of this chapter, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, less, less nuanced than the other one, which really speaks more to the question of, you know, what purpose the suffering of Israel uh, may have ultimately had in history. Right, as, as, a, uh, as a refiner's fire, as <laughs> to use a, uh, <laughs> to an expression, a yes. to borrow a term. So, uh, okay, would you like me to read verse 5? I think it would be wonderful. 
but he was wounded because of our sins. Now, I'm reading from uh, my new JPS. He was wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole, and by his bruises, we were healed. So this is really a recapitulation of what we just explained, right? That um, Mm -hmm. one way of understanding, from the nation's point of view, the suffering of Israel was that Israel suffered as a result due to the wickedness uh, uh, that we perpetrated upon them, and it was through scapegoating them in order to make our lives easier. Uh, the second reading, which is more nuanced, is that the nations recognized that Israel's purification through suffering um, ultimately benefited them. And what we see here is interesting that most Christian Bibles have this translated as he was wounded for our iniquities, and he was oppressed through uh, for our sins. I mean that mm-hmm. the, the the wording in the most Christian translations really supports this concept of vicarious atonement. That you know A is suffering on behalf of B. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 Hebrew text doesn't really support that. And what we see throughout the Bible. I mean, we're not going to have a chance to read all the, the support passages. I just want to share three. But the Bible makes it very clear that Israel ultimately suffers due to the cruelty and wickedness of the nations of the world. So Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25, the prophet says, Pour out your wrath upon the nations that do not know you and upon the families who do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. So Jeremiah is speaking about the destruction of Israel through the nations that didn't know God. In Psalm 94, uh, verses 3 to 5, the psalmist writes, How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly, all who do wickedness and vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Mm-hmm. So again, the, 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 and I, I have you know, uh, at least a dozen, and there are probably more, passages which clearly tell us that Israel suffers not for the sins of the world, but from the sins of the world. Psalm 79 uh, reads as follows, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food Mm -hmm. to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name, because they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Mm. Um, so this is, a, again, a theme that is reiterated, corroborated, substantiated, throughout the Bible, and it's what Isaiah here is expressing, that the nations are going to admit, admit and acknowledge that it was their wickedness that caused the suffering of the Jewish people. It wasn't the wickedness of the Jewish people that brought about their own suffering. In verse 6, Yes, it says, We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way, and the Lord visited upon him the guilt, the guilt of us all. 
So here again is unless we bear in mind who's speaking, it's impossible to understand this chapter. Here it's the nations and kings of the world that are confessing it was we like sheep that have gone astray. Again, their assumption all along was that it was Israel that was wicked, Israel that was deserving what they got. And here they're acknowledging, no, we were really the ones that were wicked. And again, as above, they either confess their wickedness here and recognize that Israel suffered instead of them um, because the Israel had to go through the purification um, of their wickedness through suffering. The other thing, another way of reading this is that now the nations are saying that we realize that we were wrong all along and that God was using us to punish and purify Israel for his purposes. I mean, that we're going to see later on in the chapter when we get to it, that God had a purpose for persecuting, for crushing Israel. It wasn't as if uh, this was purely a one-sided enterprise or it was purely a project of the nations. Um, everyone has their own responsibility here. So the nations are saying that even though it was true God wanted to use us to punish and purify Israel for his purposes, the nations are saying here that we always thought we were doing God's work in punishing the Jews, um, and we always thought that it was a result of their sins, but now we realize that we were the sinful ones. And it's true that God intended for Israel to suffer. That was certainly God's intention. The Jews would not have suffered if it wasn't God's intention, but the nations are still responsible because God did not uh, force any particular nation to carry out the suffering of the Jews. And certainly, as we said last week, didn't uh, expect any agent to go way beyond what they were supposed to do, meaning that God may have intended, as Zechariah chapter 1 verse 15 says, God may have intended to cause some suffering to the Jews, but the nations of the world went way beyond that and literally butchered them and killed them and slaughtered them. That was going way beyond what they were supposed to be doing in the first place. Verse 7, he was maltreated, yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth, like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a ewe, a ewe being a, a, a female sheep, like a ewe, dumb before those who shear her. He did not open his mouth. The critical piece here is that it's describing the nature of our torment. Uh, we're told here that the fate of the Jewish people was either to be slaughtered like sheep, as if that's the first part of the verse, a sheep that's led to the slaughter, or we may not have been killed, but we were fleeced for our possessions, meaning that we were robbed. Mm -hmm. And that's the lamb that is silent before her shearers. So that, that describes two kinds of uh, fate that were met by the Jewish people. But the real critical question here is, what does it mean that, that the suffering of the Jewish people was not opening our mouths? We didn't open our mouth. What does that mean, we didn't open our mouth? Because that's not so easy to understand. What does it mean that we were mute, that we, that we didn't have a voice? So the simplest way of reading it, which may not be the best way, is that we lived in a world throughout our history where we were basically abandoned by the entire world, and there was no one to listen to our pleas. We were basically rendered mute, meaning that we didn't have a voice, because anything we would have protested or screamed, we couldn't take anyone to court. Nothing that we would say in our own defense would be heard. Um, it would be sort of, as some people say, it would be as meaningless as the bleeding of sheep for us to mm -hmm. have said anything. But I think there's a much deeper way of understanding this, much more profound, and I think much more really on target. You know, the Jewish people suffered incredibly throughout their history. And one of the uh, things that this chapter of Isaiah describes 
is that we embraced our mission as the Jewish people. We didn't walk away from it. And we see an incredible uh, passage in the 44th chapter in the book of Psalms. Um, and I'm going to read it if it's okay. Please. Um, I'm just going to re- begin with verse 12. You have given us as sheep to the slaughter, and you have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for no great gain, and you have not put their price high. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me, and my humiliation is overwhelmingly. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart was not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long, Mm. and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So I believe that what the prophet is saying here, in that in, in the face of all of our suffering, what does it mean that we didn't open our mouth? I believe that what it means is we didn't curse God, we didn't reject God, we didn't turn to other gods. And that's what's borne out in Psalm 44. And that's an incredible thing, that a people who have been tormented and persecuted, literally wherever we are throughout our history, incredible, intense suffering that people can't even imagine, and yet we, at least the righteous of Israel, have stayed true to our allegiance to God, to our loyalty to God. Um, We're willing to willingly sacrifice ourselves for the honor of God, for the sake of God, And we don't complain. We don't reject God. We don't curse God. We don't turn to other gods. Now, if I may, I want to share with with the audience something that I saw this summer that absolutely brought me to tears. Um, I was traveling this summer in Europe, and one of our stops was to the concentration camp, the the, uh, Interregenstadt. Um, which was supposedly a show camp because it was the nicest of all the concentration camps. They would take the uh, you know international officials to show them how well the prisoners were being treated, although there were thousands of Jews that were killed at Theresienstadt. Um, but I, I, the, for me, the most moving moment of being in Theresienstadt was we were taken to a secret room that was used during the time when Jewish people were held there it was a secret prayer room. Actually, there were seven, I think, different secret prayer rooms in Theresienstadt. Can you imagine here, people are literally in a death camp, and they managed to create these seven different places where they could go to pray to God. Mm. And um, we went into this room, and they had all these inscriptions on the wall. And one of the inscriptions, I actually posted this on my Facebook page this, this summer, they had uh, a passage from one of the prayers that said in the morning, um, the, the line in the, in the prayer says, um, yet despite all of this, now again, you have to remember this was, this was written by these prisoners, by these inmates in this Nazi death camp, written on the wall of the room that they prayed in every day. They, they cited this passage from one of the prayers Yet despite all of this, we have not forgotten your name. Please do not forget us. Despite all of this, wow. you know, 
not just what they were going through, but the 3,000 years of what we've experienced. Mm. And they're saying, we have not forgotten your name. Please don't Mm. forget us. So I believe that's what verse 7 is saying, that here we went through so much affliction, so much torment, and we never really uh, rejected our mission. We never rejected God. We didn't curse God. We didn't turn to other gods. And I think you see it beautifully uh, explicated in, in Psalm 44. Verse 8, by oppressive judgment, he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? For he was cut off from the land of the living through the sin of my people who deserved the punishment. That's a New King James translation? That's actually the, uh, uh, the Jewish study Bible, uh, the, the JPS. Would you like okay. the, the New King James translation of verse 8? I would be surprised Interested? if it was much better. <laughs> okay. It says, He was taken from prison and from judgments, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. It says, He was stricken. Now, you, you pointed out, I think, in the first program that we did, that it should say, They were stricken. Yeah, the, the Hebrew word there is lamo, and uh, if you just look back a few chapters in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44, verses 7 and 15, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 21, you, you see very clearly that the word means them or to them, mm-hmm. um, and it appears the same word 47 other places in Scripture, and it always is a plural, it always is referring to uh, them or they. Um, so I'm surprised that the uh, JPS translation doesn't seem to catch that. It is interesting. Uh, I, I'm looking at my uh, my Stones edition here, and it says, uh, "Now that he has been released from captivity and judgment, who could have imagined such a generation? For he had been removed from the land of the living, an affliction upon them that was my people's sin." For yeah, that, that's probably a more uh, accurate translation, I would say. Okay. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's not an easy verse to, again, it, this could be spun in a number of different ways. One way that this is seen is that the, the, the Isaiah here is saying, that actually the nations are saying here, that the Jewish people, Israel, was not persecuted by individuals, uh, sort of people that were not representative of governments or criminals, but that the persecution of the Jews was the official action of governments and rulers of the lands, meaning that it was through governments and judgments that he was deprived. It was that the the persecution of the Jewish people took place through the actions, official actions of governments and rulers of the lands in which they lived. Um, And we were deprived of access to the courts to protect Mm -hmm. us, meaning that it was the courts themselves that brought about these persecutions. Or um, some people read this as saying that uh, our oppressors denied us our own rule and our own government, meaning that it was from government and judgment we were deprived. So th- th- there are different ways of, of parsing that particular phrase. Uh, the next phrase says basically that who could describe his generation, uh, meaning that the suffering was so great it was impossible to even describe, mm-hmm. and then we were cut out of the land of the living. Now that sometimes is referring to the land of Israel, that the land of the living is often described as the land of Israel, and so it might be referring to the exile, the Jewish people that were exiled from their land, from the land of Israel, or some people read this as we were cut out of the land of the living, meaning that we weren't even considered people who deserve to live. Our persecutors saw us as so subhuman 
that we didn't even have the and again, right. And is that not reminiscent of the Holocaust? Because we yes. know so much uh, uh, propaganda that was going around referring to Jews as rats or pigs or just but uh, subhuman, not not really human, but uh, something below us in such a way. I mean, yeah. we we've all seen that. Yeah, I just recently saw an interview with a Nazi. And, uh, you know, they were asking about how they could possibly kill so many Jewish people. And he just said nonchalantly, but they're Jews. I mean, that, they're, these are not people. Um, so that, that is the way some people understand this phrase, that we were not even to, given the right to be among the living. We were denied the right to live as other people mm. have a right to live. And, um, and then again, the last phrase, it was through the sin of my nation. This is again the confession of the nations of the world. It was because of the sin of my nation that they, Israel, were afflicted. This sort of again proves that the suffering servant is a people and not a person. And not an individual. Let me just go back to, uh, and who will declare his generation? Does this pinpoint then a particular time in history uh, as opposed to the overall suffering of the Jewish people? No, I think that really what it's saying is that in any generation you couldn't possibly explain uh, or describe fully. Yep. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Now, verse 9, I'm going to go with my uh, New King James again. It says, uh, and they, and apparently that is, and he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And as we mentioned in the first program, and as my New King James uh, reveals in the study notes, that the word death is in the plural, it should say, but with the rich at his deaths, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So, again, this is a, another verse we could spend hours trying to figure out exactly um, what is being said. Um, I would say the simplest way of reading this is that um, the nations that tormented us um, really saw us as criminals, violent criminals, uh, and people who were able to accumulate their wealth through deception, through being liars. Mm. You know, the, basically that we've been portrayed by our enemies throughout our history as wicked, violent, horrible criminals who are liars and deceivers. And that's how we were put to our death. We were put to death as that kind of, those kind of people. And yet the prophet says, but no, we were people who did no violence. Neither was any deception in our mouth, meaning we were innocent of the accusations that were leveled against us. And uh, this, this idea is expressed, and it really, I think it's one of the proofs that Isaiah really is describing here, not all of Israel, but the righteous of Israel. Mm -hmm. You'll find it in the prophet Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, an incredible passage which really parallels the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where he starts in verse 13, the remnant of Israel, so it's not all of Israel, it's the remnant mm -hmm. of Israel, the righteous remnant, shall neither commit injustice nor speak lies, neither shall deceitful speech be found in their mouth. So we're told here exactly what Isaiah says, that, that the righteous of Israel are people who are honest. There isn't deceit in their mouth. For they shall graze and lie down with no one to cause them to shudder. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment that's against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, you shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. As on the day of a festival, I'll remove disaster from you so you will not bear reproach from it. I will deal with all of your oppressors at that time. And I'll save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time, I will bring you home at the time when I gather you, for I'll make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So again, here is another passage in the Tanakh which speaks about this horrible, dreadful suffering and persecution of the people of Israel throughout the history, even though they are honest, they're righteous people, basically, especially compared to the rest of the world, and that one day God says that he's going to remove our reproach, he's going to redeem us, and we will be people, as Isaiah 52, the last few verses say, will be lifted up very high, exalted, and be given great honor. Verse 10, but the Lord chose to crush him by disease, that if he made himself an offering for guilt, he might see offspring and have long life, and that through him the Lord's purpose might prosper. And this is a very complicated passage, and I think that it's one where there's some serious problems from the Christian reading of this. I think that at this point, we don't see the nations speaking anymore, meaning that for the first nine verses of this chapter, we had the nations and kings of the world that were speaking. Now, really, the prophet is beginning to express God's perspective of the servant. Mm -hmm. And really what's going on in this verse is that previously, when the nations were speaking, they were focused on their guilt, their responsibility, their wickedness in persecuting Israel. This passage now, this verse, is really speaking from God's perspective about Israel in the sense that Israel didn't need to suffer in order to purify her of her sins. Meaning that it's true that we didn't deserve the the suffering that the nations heaped upon us, but God did want to have us suffer to be purified. And we see this, we saw before in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, that God uses suffering to refine and purify Israel. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, that the Bible says God disciplines us, punishes us like a father disciplines his child. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, we're told that God rebukes the one that he loves, just like a father will. And the prophet Amos chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You alone have I singled out of all the nations of the earth, and that's why I will cause you to account for all of your iniquities. Meaning that because of God's deep, close relationship with us as a Jewish people, he will hold us responsible for all of our sins, and he will discipline us, and he'll, prefer, he'll purify us through, again, the crucible of suffering. But what the verse is saying is that for this discipline of suffering to be meaningful, for it to be effective, Israel has to acknowledge its guilt. Now, the way most Christian translations render this phrase, im tasim asham nafsho, they usually have this as if he will make himself into a sin offering or a guilt offering. And that they, they find in here a reference to a sacrifice, an actual temple sacrifice. Mm-hmm. But the, the word asham does not necessarily refer to a sacrifice. It simply means guilt. And so a simpler reading of this phrase, im tasim asham nafsho, would be 
if he if his soul um, would if if his soul would acknowledge guilt if he would acknowledge guilt I mean that we are going to suffer and for that suffering to really purify us we have to acknowledge that we were guilty and what's problematic here from the Christian reading of this is that the sacrifice that they're describing the asham is not the sin offering meaning that in Leviticus chapter four. You have the generic, what's called a korban chatat, the sin mm-hmm. offering, which was brought for usually unintentional sins. And it was brought for any kind, essentially, of unintentional sins. The rabbis say that specifically unintentional sins where the penalty would be excision, karate. But the, the, the chapter 4 in Leviticus specifically describes this korban chatat, the sin offering. The asham was really not the same thing. The asham is described in Leviticus chapter 5, and it was very limited, meaning that it was not a generic sacrifice for all kinds of sins. Uh, The Bible describes just five or six specific kinds of sins, peculiar sins, that you brought this particular sacrifice Mm. for. Usually it was if you didn't know for sure if you committed a sin or if you um, contaminated something in the temple, uh, it had to do with with, uh, denying certain oaths. But they're very specific transgressions that this sacrifice, the asham, is brought for. So it's difficult to understand why Christians would see in this this idea of a generic sacrifice for all the sins of mankind. And the other problem would be that in the Christian scriptures, Jesus was not considered to be an asham. He was considered to be the Paschal Lamb, which by all means was not an asham, a guilt offering. But the the, the, the simpler and probably the, the, the more accurate reading of this is not that the servant makes himself into a sacrifice, but simply the servant has to acknowledge his guilt. And again, the reward, we're told, is that the nation is going to have a long life through its progeny, meaning mm. through having children, the nation will continue to live. Continue. You know, continue we're going out, to outlast our enemies. All those people who persecuted us through our history are gone, long gone. You know, but Israel continues to live through its children. And what the prophet here says is that the real reward is not just that we're going to have children that will perpetuate us but that the purpose of God will succeed through our hand, meaning that the mm. real reward to Israel is we're going to see that there was a purpose and a meaning to all of our, our suffering and to our service of God in that one day, as Isaiah chapter 60 says, the nations will come to our light. Or as mm. Zechariah chapter 8 says, that the nations will come to us and say, we want to follow you, we've heard God is with you. Mm. That's the ultimate reward that we're going to see. But again, if you go through Scripture you'll find that very, very frequently the the reward to Israel is described as progeny. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth as witnesses. Before you I have placed life and death, the blessing and curse. You must choose life so you and your seed will survive. If you choose to love the Lord your God, to obey him, to attach yourself to him, this is the sole means of survival and long life. Mm. When you dwell in the land that God swore to your fathers, meaning that the mm. nation will have long life. Deuteronomy 28 verse 11 says, And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity 
in the fruit of your body and in the fruit of your beast, meaning that we're going to basically multiply. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiplied. This is a constant theme of the scriptures is that the nation will be fruitful. We're going to multiply. We're going to grow. We're going to have children. Mm. We'll live a long life. Isaiah chapter 65 Verse 20, no longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a 100, and one who does not reach the age of a 100 will be thought of as accursed. So again, the prophet here speaks about the fact that we will live as people for a very long time. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of the multitude of their days. And Zechariah chapter 10, verse 8, I will whistle to them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them, and they will multiply as they multiplied. Mm. And again, all the way back to Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, therefore, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed will possess the gates of their enemies, etc. So this idea that the servant's going to be rewarded with long days and with children, with, with actual children, is not just here in Isaiah. It's a theme that appears throughout the Bible. And verse 11 begins by saying, Out of his anguish he, sh- he shall see it. He shall enjoy it to the full through his devotion. Again, this is sort of a recapitulation of what we just read. Mm. uh, That from the travail of the servant, of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. Meaning that the servant's going to be satisfied with what he's accomplished over the course of history. And with his knowledge, my righteous servant will cause many to be just and will bear their sins. And this has to be discussed uh, briefly. First of all, mentioned that from a Christian point of view, it shouldn't be speaking about with his knowledge. Jesus didn't really help anyone with his knowledge. The Christian reading should have said, with his blood, my righteous servant will cause many to be just. Um, so clearly this is something that's reflecting more of what the national uh, task of the Jewish people is, which is to be the teachers of the world, the light to the nations. Um, but one simple way of seeing this um, this phrase, um, with his knowledge, my servant uh, justifies justice to the multitudes. I mean that it, it's not so easy to translate this. Um, one reading is that we will justify justice to the multitudes, meaning that what Israel is going to do is by accepting the suffering imposed by God and not rejecting it, and not protesting, and not re- and not cursing God, and not abandoning God and going elsewhere by accepting the suffering that God opposed upon us as just. Um, We really are basically justifying that justice. We're testifying to the fact that, you know, God knows what he's doing. We didn't complain. It is difficult. Uh, So I've got here, my righteous servant makes the many righteous. It is their punishment that he bears. Yeah, that's another way of reading it. I just wanted to Mm. to mention that, that it doesn't have to be that... We're going to make the many righteous, but that the first reading would be that with his knowledge, 
the knowledge of what our suffering was about, mm. uh, this reading says, my servant will justify justice to the multitudes, meaning that we will demonstrate to the world that God was just in the way he treated the Jewish people, um, by the way that we accepted our suffering, we didn't mm. protest. The other reading, which is probably the more uh, common one, is that by our knowledge, meaning that by the knowledge of teaching Torah, the Bible says, for example, in Isaiah chapter 2 and Micha chapter 4, Ki mitzion Torah, out of Zion will go forth teaching, the instruction of God. So that's the real export of the Jewish people. Mm. Um, the real export is Torah, is God's mm-hmm. truth, is God's wisdom. And so that will cause many people to be righteous. What is it that's going to transform the world? It is what the people of Israel are actually teaching. Um, and the the tricky phrase here is where it ends by saying, uh, and we will bear their sins. Mm. What does this mean? So basically, we know through the Bible that Israel is supposed to be God's priests to the world. We know that in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, we call them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Isaiah chapter 61, verse 6, says you'll be called priests of the Lord. So we serve as priests vis-a-vis the rest of the world. We know that within Israel, within the 12 tribes of Israel, one of our tribes, the tribes of the tribe of Levi, of Levi, had one of its families, the family of Aaron, were the priests. And the priests basically had two functions. One is that they did administer in the temple. They did perform the rituals in the temple of the sacrificial service. But the truth is that there were so many priests that any particular priest would not be in the temple bringing sacrifices for too much of the year. They had a rotation where a priest may have been in the temple a total of one or two days a year. So one role of the priests was to serve in the temple, but the other major role of the priests was to be teachers. We know that, for example, in the prophet Malachi, chapter 2, verse 7, the priests are supposed to be teaching. And there are many verses which speak about that role of the priests. And Nehemiah also speaks about it, I think, in the 8th chapter. Um, So we have this role vis-a-vis the rest of the world. In the same way that the Levitical priests were to be the teachers of Israel, Israel is to be, are to be the teachers, the priests to the rest of the world. Now, the, there is a heavy responsibility when you're a teacher. Um, the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 1, says that the Jewish priests would bear the responsibility for the sins of Israel. If the priests of Israel, the Levitical priests, are supposed to be the teachers of Israel, So when Israel does not behave properly, who is responsible? And the Bible says it's the priests that are responsible. Mm. Priests bear the responsibility for the sins of Israel. So in the same way, Israel bears the responsibility for the sins of the world. And we see that in the prophet um, Malachi, in the continuation of that passage, Mm. chapter 2, where it says that um, priests are held responsible if the people don't improve. And so Israel and the Jewish people will be responsible as teachers of mankind, and in that way we will bear their sins. Fascinating. Verse 12, the final verse of chapter 53, it ends this way, Assuredly, I will give him the many as his portion, He shall receive the multitude as his spoil, for he exposed himself to death 
and was numbered among the sinners, whereas he bore the guilt of the many and made intercession for sinners. So this, this again, is a sort of summing up and a recapitulation. Mm-hmm. The first thing that the, the verse says is that the servant Israel will receive the wealth from their persecutors. Um, you know, when it comes to Jesus, it's totally impossible to understand this. I mean, what is Jesus going to need from the, the nations of the world? You know, he doesn't need another car, and he doesn't need another camel. Um, you can't give anything. You know, they say, what do you give to the man who has everything? So what do you give to the, to the Lord of the universe? If Jesus is God, it's hard to understand what it means that he's going to get some more gold and some more silver. Mm. Um, so the, the Bible here, the, the prophet describes Israel as part of the reward receiving the wealth from their persecutors. And I, I suspect what this means is that if they're going to be serving in the messianic age as the teachers of mankind, they're going to be supported. The world is going to support them to be teachers. The Jews will not have to have other kinds of jobs. They'll be fulfilling their biblical mandate, which is to be the teachers of the world. And we see this idea of Israel receiving the wealth of the nations Again, throughout the Bible, we see it in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 23. We see it even more clearly in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 5 through 6. Mm-hmm. We see it again in the prophet Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 10. We see it in the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 14. Meaning that the, in the Bible, this theme of Israel ultimately inheriting the wealth of the nations uh, is not just taught in Isaiah 53. It's corroborated through the rest of the Bible. Mm. Why do we deserve this? Why are we going to be getting this reward? Because we poured out our, our souls to death, meaning we went to our deaths in the service of God's mission. We sacrificed ourselves. We suffered. Um, in Hebrew, it's called um, Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying God's name, and it's called Nesirut Nefesh, to give over your soul, meaning to, to the point of death, sacrificing yourself for God's mission. So the prophet here says that that's why the servant is going to receive these rewards and ultimately achieve their purpose because we did, to the point of dying, carry out God's service and God's mission. And part of this was, again, to carry the sins of the world, to ultimately bring them to repentance, to bring the world to teshuva, to bring the world to perfection. And until that happens, we did have to carry their sins. And that ultimately, um, part of our responsibility is always, as the people of Israel, to pray for the nations of the world. The prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 29, verse 7, says that even when we were in exile, we were supposed to pray for the nations that we were exiled to, pray for the welfare of those nations. And the prophet Isaiah here says that even in the messianic future, Israel is going to continue to pray for the nations of the world. My goodness. That is Isaiah 53. That is that's part three of Isaiah 53. We're done. Well, that's, Jono, that's an introduction. <laughs> that's an introduction. Yeah. Usually, I mean, now, you do, you do lectures uh, specifically on this topic, and, and they go much longer than what we've touched on here, right? Yeah, I mean, even those lectures, I mean, it, it, it is, uh, look, not just this chapter, I mean, much of the Bible is complex, and you could really get involved with exactly how you translate a verse, how you parse the verse, mm-hmm. uh, how each phrase is broken up. Um, it's not 100% simple. We basically try to cover this chapter 
uh, in a pretty basic way. We didn't micromanage it. We didn't dissect it to the nth degree because you really would need to have a fluency in the Hebrew mm-hmm. um, to be able to discuss how exactly should the words be translated and, and what, how the syntax should parse the words. But I think what we try to do is to give a general sense of what is really going on here in this chapter. Um, this is not a chapter that's describing the Messiah who comes to die for the sins of the world who would believe in him. As a matter of fact, what's interesting is that there's nothing in this chapter about believing in the suffering of the servant. As a matter of fact, the, one of the great problems from a Christological point of view is that the passage speaks about the servant being rejected, and yet, you know, he, he suffered for our sins. Meaning that the people that are speaking from a Christian point of view, what they're actually saying is that uh, the suffering of the servant to atone for our sins was not through our believing in him, it was through our rejection of him, which is sort of strange. That's a very um, good point. That's a very good point, which I had not thought of before, and there's something for people to ponder upon. That's, yeah. a, that's an excellent point. That's oh, a my ponderable. Goodness. It's ponderable. It is, isn't but, it? But I think that, that you know, the, the clearest reading, and I think, again, I want to emphasize this, I think it's the reason why so many Christian scholars and commentaries basically go along with the reading that we uh, explored last week and this week, which is that this is a chapter that's basically dealing with the nation of Israel. It's a speech that's being made primarily by the nations of the world, and they're sort of recapitulating and reconsidering their long relationship with Israel that will be taking place in the future at the redemption. Uh, Again, it's not so simple to, to plug every single word into this reading, but I think that we presented that version of understanding this chapter of Isaiah and I think that it has a, a, a tremendous amount uh, going for it, as opposed to the Christological reading, which is really laced with difficulties. Mm-hmm. Incredible difficulties, that we, as we uh, highlighted, particularly in the first one. That takes us to the end of Isaiah chapter 53. That is uh, on the original list, 100 and, sorry, 270. That's where we're up to, 270 on the original list. There are still references in Isaiah, and that takes us to... 289 perhaps next week we can get through all of those then we'll be knocking at the door of jeremiah rabbi michael skoback thank you my friend for coming back on over three programs to to uh give us isaiah chapter 53 in a nutshell honestly i'm looking at um, my open bible it's absolutely covered in scribble of notes and references <laughs> <laughs> and, and i think this is the most scribbled upon pages uh, in the, in the whole of my tanakh so Thank you so much for that. Again, dear listeners, it is JewsForJudaism.ca. If you want to get more on this, and as Michael just pointed out, there is so much more, uh, you will find a lot more on the website, JewsForJudaism.ca, and you'll also find links to the YouTube channel uh, where Michael does give uh, far more detailed lectures in this regard. So thank you again, my friend, for coming back on to Truth To You. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. Always a great privilege to have you. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed, be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.